Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this evening, and we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather with your people. We thank you, Father, for your word that we can gather around and that we can know you, we can know truth, and we pray that you would uh, guide us in your word tonight, Lord. Help us to grow, help us to glean, Father, what you have for us, and uh, Father, may we, uh, maybe we draw closer to you through it, and we pray that you would also just bless the uh, prayer time at the end of the service as well, Lord, that you'd be glorified and uh, hear our prayers as we bring our requests before you. Uh, tonight, Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take our Bible to Second uh, Timothy chapter number 3 tonight, Second Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 14 and come down through verse 17. Uh, we're continuing our study on uh, pillars of a biblical church, and uh, these pillars revolve around the solas of the Reformation, as I mentioned uh, beforehand. Uh, our first two messages were really introductory, trying to see... Uh, how, why these are important and how the world has influenced the church and how these particular doctrinal uh, truths help guard us and guide us uh, in keeping a pure gospel and uh, following biblical patterns. And so the first one tonight is Scripture alone. And this really is foundational to all of the rest, uh, as you'll see in this study. And uh, I gave you abundance of notes. Some of that, some of the things I'm going to say to you, it's just for your information to kind of express uh, what this message is about, and so I hope, hope that they'll be helpful to you. But let's read our text, and then we'll, we'll continue on into the, into the message. Second Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 14 down through verse 17. Uh, the Bible says this, and this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, we look at our Christian life and the world around us there are many influences in this world that impact the lives of people. Influences lead people to believe certain things and to live certain ways. And there are many influences, as we've discussed, that are often under the, uh, I guess you could say, the umbrella of Christianity that are not truly Christian. Uh, things that seem to be godly, seem to be religious, that may affect us. And when we look at the world and uh, what should influence our lives, what should influence what we believe, uh, we know that that influence should be the Scriptures alone. That should be the core foundation of our Christianity. Now, this is the first of the five solas of the Reformation, as I mentioned a moment ago. It is known as sola scriptura. That's the Latin phrase for Scripture alone, and you'll commonly see that uh, referenced in Latin today as, as kind of a, an earmark of that doctrinal principle. But it means that Scripture alone is the authority for all faith and practice of the church. This, practical, this, this particular doctrinal principle, it is foundational for the gospel and all else that we believe. And uh, this is why this really goes first before the rest of them. When we get to Christ alone and grace alone and faith alone and glory to God alone, how is it that we know about all those things? Well, we know of those truths because of the Scripture. And if the Scripture is not reliable, if the Scripture is not authoritative, then we really don't have a foundation to stand on at all. 
And so Scripture alone really is where this all begins. Without a firm foundation upon Scripture, there's an open door for any kind of influence to govern the church and corrupt the gospel. Uh, This is easily seen in our own day and time, as we see many religious influences uh, leading many people different directions. But when we look at this, just, just because something or someone is religious or claims the name of Christ does not mean that they truly know the truth or are propagating the truth. Such was the case at the Reformation era, as we've mentioned before, that, dur- that, that during the 16th century, the Reformers, they were stirred and resolved upon their conviction that Scripture alone was to be the authority for what to believe and how to practice what they believed. Contrary to the corrupted church, the church in Rome, uh, that really held themselves as the authority. They implemented all kinds of traditions and extra-biblical commands and things that were required, uh, unbiblical things, as a means of salvation and merits into eternal life. So that's really one of the foundational backgrounds here. But notice in our notes three points here tonight that I think are, that are essential for us understanding this point or, or this, this sola of sola scriptura and why it's uh, important. Notice with me, firstly, that Scripture alone has divine inerrancy, or it is divinely inerrant. What does it mean that it's inerrant? That means that the Scripture is without error, that it is indeed the truth of God, uh, that it is not uh, mixed with error. So let's think for a moment, firstly, of the scope of Scripture. When we, th- when we speak of Scripture, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the inspired Word of God as we have in our hand. Now, notice in our text that Paul says in verse 16, he says, all Scripture is breathed by God. All Scripture is of God. So, when he says all Scripture, what's he referencing? Is he referencing only certain books, or was he referencing what he's penning right there? What is he referencing as all Scripture? Well, the Scriptures Paul would be referring to in context of Timothy would be, firstly, the Old Testament Scriptures. That's the main Scriptures that they had and that they used uh, in that era of time, and at least some New Testament writings, uh, which by that time that Paul wrote this, they were considered the Scriptures. Uh, you'll find that Peter references Paul's writings as the Scriptures. And so uh, we see through this era when Paul was writing this, this is uh, the last letter Paul would write, that the Scriptures were being penned and they were being written and they were being established, and, and they, were being, uh, they, they were known as the Word of God uh, given by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we see that uh, Paul and Timothy, here they had these inspired scriptures to read and study. We see in verse 15, Timothy knew from a childhood, his childhood, the sacred writings or the scriptures, right? That's what he's talking about. And what did those scriptures do for Timothy? They were able to make him wise unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. So when you read through Acts and Paul and and Silas and his team, they would go to the synagogue and they would preach and reason from the Scriptures. They're reasoning from the Old Testament because the Old Testament uh, is all about Christ. Uh, We understand that it it is what points us to the redemptive work of Christ is what foretold it. Uh, This is what Jesus used as he met with those disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 27. He he said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the saying things concerning himself. So what what a sermon that must have been, right? Uh, To hear Jesus expounding all the Old Testament texts 
unto them and showing them the, their, the, him himself in the scriptures. So while all scripture would have immediately referred to the Old Testament and part of the New Testament they're already written, as we read it today, we understand this applies to the whole of the Bible, the whole of the canon of scripture that you and I have uh, are 66 books of the Bible. We have a completed canon of scripture that is providentially verified and affirmed as the word of God. And we find that Paul, we read about Paul and how he wrote and what he preached. He understood that what he was receiving was not uh, something of his imagination or something that just stirred him. He was receiving the divine gospel and word of God. He says this in Galatians 1.12. He says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He had firsthand experience from Jesus. Uh, revealing truth, revealing the gospel to him. So all of the New Testament, all of the Old Testament are the inspired scriptures. And that brings us to that conclusion that every bit of scripture, every book from Genesis to Revelation, every genre, uh, from the letters to the wisdom to poetry to prophecy to historical narrative, all of it from beginning to end is God-breathed. It is all of God's word. So when we look at this, that's the scope of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. That's, that's what we have as the Scriptures. But notice with me, letter B, we see in this text also, we see the source of Scripture. The source of Scripture, it is of God alone. And that's, that's a big question for a lot of people in this world. Where did Scripture come from? Did men just feel extra spiritual one day and inspirational in their thoughts and decided to pin some things down and decide that this was going to be God's Word? No, Paul tells us plainly that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this, this statement alone is essential to understanding Scripture alone, sola scriptura, because if what we have is not the breath of God, if it is not His Word, then uh, it's, it's, we can't count on it for anything. We cannot count on it to be uh, something that reveals to us eternal truth with eternal salvation. So why is Scripture alone so essential to this doctrine? We see Scripture alone is rooted in the eternal God, the one true God. Now, there's a lot of gods, quote-unquote, little g, that man has created, and they have their writings that they claim is uh, part of their religion. But... They are, they are a plethora of false gods. There is only one true and living God. And if this one true and living God uh, is the one true God, how can we know of Him? How can we know what He says is true and how to be right with Him? Well, we see that this comes from the inspired Word of God, being breathed out by God. Now, how did this Word come to, come to mankind? Now, there's so much here that I'm, I'm going to try to breeze through because we could do a whole series on Scripture and how it came to be and all of this thing. Uh, but you'll see throughout, even in Scripture, as you read Scripture, sometimes God gave visions or uh, had the Word of God dictated to be written down. We find other examples where He even Himself uh, wrote, wrote the Word of God in tablets of stone. We know that Moses broke those later. But we see ways in which God communicated with mankind. But ordinarily, God used men with their own natural skills and personalities to pin down the words of Scripture under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. So when we look at this, we must understand that what is written by Paul's hand is pinned down under the superintended guidance of God, of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Peter makes reference to this in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Ghost. So we find inspiration in the preaching and in the writing uh, as God developed His Word. So what do you find with that? And this is something that's always fascinated me. We find God's sovereignty over His written Word and man's activity as being the vessels He used to record it. So that's one of the arguments is that, well, the Bible is just written by a man. Well, God used men to pin it down on literal parchment and scrolls. Now we have paper for us, but it was His Word. It wasn't theirs. It wasn't uh, what didn't flow from their will, but rather from His will. To illustrate this, often Jubilee and David will want to try to uh, mow the yard with me. And I remember doing this as a kid too, just wanting to sit on Daddy's lap and uh, help him mow the yard, right? Well, I let them put their hands on the steering wheel and uh, you know, let them try to turn and, and make, make the cuts. You're supposed to go on a specific line, right? Or else you're not cutting your yard. If I, if I left it up to them, it'd be zigzagged everywhere. But uh, I let them, with their hands on the wheel, kind of steer it and turn it. But all the while, they, they think it's all them, but all the while, it's really me. It's really me. I'm the one who's governing the mower. I'm the one who's, they've got the hands on it, but I am the one who is superintending that whole process. They're not mowing the the yards by themselves. And so when we think about the Scriptures, God had the Scriptures written through men who had their own unique personalities or styles of writing. We see that as you read the Gospels. Matthew had a different style, Mark, Luke, John, all of them. Paul, but God is the one who's governing the words. God is the one who's governing what is being pinned down. So God sovereignly works through human means. Now consider the power and authority of such Scripture as the breath of God. We think about creation, for, exist- for, for example. How did everything come into existence? By the Word of God. I was reading Genesis last week devotionally, and, and just reading through Genesis 1, fresh, and you just notice that at the beginning of each day, God said, there be, and it just was. I mean, the power and the might of the, the very breath of God, and, and, and it just ushers everything into existence out of nothing. And understand that the Word of God in written form here, it is, it is given to us by the same breath, the same power as, as Psalm 33, 6. He says, by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. It's a power to consider for us. And because it is God-breathed, we know that it is infallible and it is preserved that it will not fade away. And that's what Peter will tell us uh, in 1 Peter 1, 25. I'll read this to you briefly. I've got several other places we're going to kind of come through this. I've got too much information that I want to try to get through. Uh, but you look at First Peter 1, verse 24 through 25. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, that's, that's an assurance to us that uh, God's word, the psalmist says, it's already settled in heaven. It can't be changed. It can't be undone. It can't be wiped away. And so because of this, because of this, God's Word, the Scriptures are God's Word and not man's, the result of this is that our hearts must bow before every page and every verse of Scripture. Every page, every verse of Scripture because it comes from the breath of God. John Calvin comments on this and says, We owe to the Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him alone 
and it has nothing of man mixed with it. So since Scripture alone is divinely inspired, we hold to sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is our authority. There's no book like the Bible, none perfect, none powerful, none preserved like the Word of God. But because all Scriptures God breathed, what does this mean for us in the world? What does this mean for us in the world? Notice with me number two tonight. Scripture alone has divine authority. Scripture alone has divine authority for what we believe and practice. And I've, I've broken this up into two different categories that uh, I want you to see in which Scripture is authoritative over. All right? The first one is this. The world and opinion are subject to Scripture. The world and opinion are subject to Scripture. Now, the world and opinion outside the church and outside the Word of God, they don't think that they're subject to Scripture, but they are. They are. Sola Scriptura means that all other categories of knowledge are under the authority of Scripture. Now, think about this. Throughout the world, we have many people who claim that they are the authority on certain issues, right? Some think that they're the authority over religion, some science, finance, politics, economics, history, health. But as even through the COVID crisis, you see that man is not the authority on things. They may think they've got things figured out, but all the while, they're still trying to learn what really is happening, what's really going on. Now, men study and get their degrees and on whatever topic they pursue, and they naturally think they've got it figured all out. And I will note this. There are gifted people who have great knowledge on certain topics. I'm not doubting that at all, all right? The Lord gives men, even unregenerate men, wisdom and knowledge in various issues of life in the world, all right? There's all sorts of areas that we could talk about. But when any of these subjects runs contrary to the written Word of God, here's what we must understand. God's Word is always right, and man is subject to error. Man is subject to error, especially under the influence of his sinful nature. In fact, man in his sinful nature not only commits errors in his natural understanding and knowledge, but he also will intentionally seek to change facts to deviate from the Bible. Uh, he looks for ways to undermine the Scripture that holds him accountable to the Creator. So we see that in, in some of those who show forth more hostility uh, towards God, such as the profound atheists and such. But nevertheless, this doesn't mean that all material written by non-Christian authors is unusable, right? Sola Scriptura does not mean that Scripture provides detail for every aspect of this world. For example, we don't read the scriptures to try to figure out how to fix our car or to perform surgery or to, uh, or, or, or to operate a computer. Scripture is not a science book. It's not a math book. It's not a history book. But scripture's author is the same author of science and of math and of history. So you see there's a connection here. Whatever topic you want to name, God is the true author of all such knowledge that man can acquire. This means that no true science or true history will contradict the Bible if it's rightly understood. So there's often, this is often used as an attack against Scripture, right? For example, we think about in the science world. The so-called science of the world says everything randomly came into existence from the Big Bang with no divine author billions of years ago. That's what they teach in schools about science. They call that science. It says this is the facts. And almost any kind of nature thing you watch, they're going to plug in the Big Bang and millions of years and evolution, all of that. But Scripture says contrary. 
says, God created the world out of nothing in six days. So it comes to the Christian, and we're faced with the secular and what God says, what secular science says, and what God's Word says. Which one is true? Which one do we believe? So this is where I'm point bringing this out, is that the Bible is the authority, and true science aligns with the Bible. It does not point to the Big Bang ushering everything into existence. The Big Bang, just by side note, is not observable scientifically. And the scriptures give us firsthand testimony by God of what happened. And when you look at true science, you find that it aligns with creationism, not the Big Bang or millions of years. So that's one example. The Bible's not a science book, but true science aligns with the Bible because God's the author of science. So what do you find? Science is subject to the Word of God. Same for math, same for history. The Bible's not a history book, but the author of the Bible is the author of history. So, therefore, history in the Bible will align with history in the world. If it doesn't, that would undermine its credibility. James Montgomery Boyce comments on that and says, The Bible is a historical book, and Christianity is a historical religion. So, if the Bible errs in matters of historical fact, Christianity will inevitably be affected. Now, this is another point. Some in our world, even liberal Bible scholars who are undermining the authority of Scripture, will attempt to say the Bible is not authoritative, because it isn't accurate historically. I was reading about one example earlier, and and, and I'll share this with you. In 2 Kings 15.29, we read of a king of Assyria, and his name was Tiglath-Pileser. This king uh, conquered the Israelites of the northern kingdom and took them into captivity. Liberal scholars, not long ago, a generation or so, were saying that this king never existed because there's no historical record of him and concluded that the northern kingdom of Assyria was mythology. So right there, you have even some in a Christian circle who were saying, well, this guy's not real because we don't have historical evidence of him, and therefore that must just be mythology. What does that do? It directly undermines the authority of the Word of God, right? Well, they, they had their... They had uh, their mind changed when archaeology excavated Tiglath-Pileser's capital city and found his name pressed into the bricks, which read, I, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, am a conqueror from the great sea. So archaeologists uh, found evidence of both the person, Tiglath-Pileser, and his campaign to conquer. We learn from this. The Bible's history is always right. It's right. Just because someone hasn't found archaeological evidence of something doesn't mean it's not there or that the Bible's authority is undermined. So here's what we learn from this. We have to be on guard against what is written in the world that undermines the Scriptures and a biblical worldview. We have to be on guard against those things. Now, so much more could be given to demonstrate that, uh, that despite man's best efforts to undermine the authority of the Bible, the Bible reveals their foolishness to do such a thing. And what does the Lord say of the world's wisdom when they think that they're right on everything? 1 Corinthians 1.20, God says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So this brings us to this conviction we must hold, that the chief and supreme authority over all things is God and His Word. His Word has the authority over all earthly wisdom and knowledge. So the Word of God does not bow to the world, The world has to bow to the Word of God. So the world has that reversed, but we know from a biblical worldview why that is. Now, how does this impact us with Scripture in relation to the world? 
If one's worldview is not rooted in Scripture, their worldview is upside down. That is the chief problem in our society, is that lost sinners around us, they do not have a biblical worldview. They do not see history, science, math, uh, the world itself and how it functions from the lens of the Bible. They're starting from the wrong starting point. And sadly, that is happening in many churches too. Now, you would think that surely this kind of thing should enter the church, but it is. It is. The biblical worldview is under attack within the local church. What the world and the church need more than ever is for the plain word of God to be declared with, to them with authority, for only the word of God can truly enlighten the dark minds of men. Now, in context of what we're reading in 2 Timothy 3, he said all scripture is given by inspiration, right? It's God breathed. But what's he say in continuing in the context in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4? Remember, there was no chapter breaks before uh, when he wrote this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach what? The word, right? So, So this all flows together. In light of what he just said about the word of God being the authoritative breath of God, preach the word. Preach the word of God. He does not say, preach what the culture might like or preach what the, the modern uh, view is. He says, preach the Word, not the ideologies, not the conclusions, not the opinions, but the Word of God alone must be preached. Why? Because of its authority and power. And when it comes to the world challenging the Word of God, it is the responsibility of God's people to cling to Scripture alone and uphold Scripture alone. So this is where we see the authority over the world and opinion. But now we come into the realm of Christianity. Notice also that the church and tradition are also subject to Scripture. The church and tradition are subject to Scripture. We have to understand that the church and tradition, they have zero authority over the Word of God. And this is often a tough one for some churches, right? Because surely if we're the church and we're God's people and we have our traditions, then uh, those things must just continue. Uh, even if they, the Word of God corrects us on those things. Wrong. Wrong. There are many churches who, who are so glued to their tradition, if you confront them with the Word of God as to why that's wrong, they buck against the Word of God. Uh, and, and, and it ought not to be that way. The church is bound to the authority of Scripture alone, not the other way around. And we've seen the ramifications of such actions in history. There was a time when the Scriptures were not readily available to the common people. And the corrupt church of Rome dictated what was allowed to be known and practiced. At a council in Toulouse, if I'm pronouncing that right, in 1229, the church of Rome issued the decree, we prohibit also the permitting of the laity to have the books of the Old and New Testament. That was their decree. Those in that corrupted church and nation were without the Bible, and as a result, there was widespread ignorance, not only among the people, but also among the clergy as well. Now, this probes my mind to think, can you imagine not having your own Bible? Can you imagine not having your own Bible? I mean, I I live in this book every day. I mean, uh, I I seek to walk with God personally, but part of my calling is to be in this book Uh, a a lot, right? But just in the Christian life, can you imagine your life without a Bible? 
No, I, I really can't. I can't. But yet the, there was a point in time when, when many were restricted from that. I'm not saying that's the only source where Christianity was. There were Christians outside of Rome who had the scriptures. I'm saying that that's what Rome had done to their, uh, their people. And what happens if people are dependent upon the church leadership for truth and they cannot read truth for themselves? They are people who are under control of another. Under the control of another. And so the dark days of the church of Rome having that power brought great deception and persecution against true believers. Then we come to the era of the Reformation and God used men like William Tyndale to get the Bible into the hands of the common people so that Scripture would be their authority and not the church. William Tyndale is recorded as saying, I defy the Pope in all his laws, and if God spare me, I will one day make the boy that drives the plow in England to know more Scripture than the Pope himself. What a conviction. I'm so glad God used him in, 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 in working in the Bible and making it known. But the, the church and tradition, that's what it brought. The same kind of activity was happening uh, in one sense during the days of Christ. What do we find in his days? The religious leadership had, so, had added so many extra laws and traditions to the Old Testament that religion, Judaism, was an unbearable burden for the people. Jesus warned them, saying in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So they would add and add and add, and nobody could keep them. They couldn't keep them themselves, but they just wanted to be in this holy state among the people to be seen of men. But that's what happens when tradition and extra-biblical demands are placed upon the people. This is why Scripture alone is essential for the church. What one believes and practices must be rooted in Scripture, properly interpreted and applied. Sadly, though, the same problem continues in many churches where exterior standards and traditions are exalted to the level of Scripture. And so, therefore, many have extra uh, non-biblical demands that they must live by, and they don't understand the grace and freedom that they have in Jesus Christ and the gospel. So we, we have to be on guard against that because doing such uh, really nullifies the power of the word of God. Jesus said of them in Mark seven thirteen in their tradition, he said, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So this is something we have to be on guard of. But beyond just adding to the word of God, uh, tradition and laws to abide by, what we also see is the opposite effect of that in churches today, where, uh, where basically um, anything can go. We're not bound to the Scripture, but rather eh, we just do whatever we want in the name of Christ. Uh, the largely, the, a largely watered-down uh, approach to the Bible to allow any kind of influence to be part of their Christianity. And this is what we saw largely in the last message, the influences of secularism and materialism and pragmatism, humanism, those things entering into the church. So there is a ditch on both sides of the road where we have to come back to sola scriptura. Martin Luther said this, Whoever does not consult scripture will know nothing, whatever. Now we know how we may escape death and the devil who has redeemed us, who has redeemed us, and how we are to get these great treasures. These things we learn only from this book of Holy Scripture. So we must resolve to have Scripture alone, even over the church. Uh, I had another quote in here by Lady Jane Grey, who was uh, a martyr uh, by the church, and she said, I ground my faith upon God's Word and not upon the church. That was one of the last things she said. So the church and tradition 
have no authority over the Word of God, the church and tradition must bow before the Word of God alone, because it alone is the authority. Notice lastly, that Scripture alone has divine sufficiency, or is divinely sufficient. And this really is probably more key now than some of the other points I've brought out. In past generations, inerrancy was truly the main battleground. There was a movement of that where there was a great challenge to the inerrancy of the Scriptures uh, a generation or so ago. But today we face the major challenge of the sufficiency of Scriptures, that the Word of God is enough for all that we should believe in practice. Is the Bible enough? Do we have all we need in this book for the Christian faith and practice? Do we need additional help from the world, such as sociological techniques, psychology? Do we need the charismatic stuff, miracles and signs to confirm uh, what we're to believe in practice? Do we, do we need uh, political influence to, to, to affirm who we're supposed to be in Christ? See, all of those sorts of things are, are things that the church is dealing with in our own day. But here's what I want you to consider in our text in 2 Timothy. If you read earlier in the text, verse 3 and forward, Paul describes all sorts of evil things that were happening and would happen in Timothy's day and time. And so you consider all the evil and the ways of the world that, that Paul describes to Timothy, what would Paul say would be the tool for all of Timothy's life and ministry? The Word of God. He comes, brings him to the Scriptures, the Word of God. Scripture alone would be sufficient for his life and ministry in the gospel. Scripture alone is sufficient for everything in the Christian life and mission. So that's what we have to hold to. So I point out just a few things here that I want to show you that it is sufficient for. It is sufficient for all Christian doctrine. It is sufficient for all Christian doctrine. In verse 16, what do you see? You see, all Scripture is breathed out for, by God and is profitable for teaching. For teaching, firstly. It is profitable for teaching. Now, this teaching is how we learn doctrine. In some translations, we'll put this as doctrine, all right? It is profitable for doctrine and teaching. Uh, true doctrine can only come from the Scriptures. Now, there's many debates that have been waged throughout church history over various doctrines. But every debate must come back to this one central point. What says the Scripture? What says the Scripture? It does not come from the church or tradition. It does not come from our preconceived notions or feelings. It comes from the Word of God. And this is why Paul does not shy away from declaring the whole counsel of God. He's preached, he declared when he was working in his ministry work, he declared everything. All of who God is, all of what he's doing, all of what, uh, he, uh, all of what he had, been re- had been revealed to him. Acts 20, 27, he tells the church in Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And, and so what we must believe is the whole scripture rightly interpreted. Scripture reveals to us all the truth God ordains for us to have in this life. Doctrine about God and who He is, creation, sin, mankind, salvation, the kingdom of God, sanctification, heaven, hell. All the doctrine we need is found in the Word of God. It flows from God's breath. We do not need other sources to determine our doctrine. So since Scripture alone is sufficient for our doctrine, we are accountable to study it and understand it. The Scripture demands our study and attention. And this study, no doubt, involves methods of rightly dividing the Word of God. And uh, to put this in simple terms, one of the best ways you can understand Scripture 
is to compare Scripture with Scripture and Scripture unfolds Scripture. I've often heard, and I agree with this term, that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Compare Scripture. We're, we're blessed with, with reference Bibles. We're blessed with all sorts of different things that we can use for study. We, we have no excuse to be ignorant of the Bible. We just don't. We have more Bibles than we can fathom that, that, that many of the Christians in the past would ever have thought possible to have our access to and tools that were available to us. So what do we need to do? We need to read it. We need to pray over it, meditate on it, compare it, and believe it. Because if we're not careful, we can read into the Bible what we want, it, want to see rather than what it is actually saying. So understanding that we are to study the Bible with diligence. 2 Peter one twenty one. Peter wrote this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And that's what we find a lot happening in our day, is that someone will read the Scriptures and decide, well, this is what I think it means, or this is how I feel it means. Uh, we are to compare Scripture with Scripture. And this is why it's imperative that we as Christians, who have our own copy of the Scriptures, study it for ourselves to know the truth. And I know that all of us, we have limited schedules and things going on in our life. I'm, I'm, I'm called to study this for a living. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, the point is, is that whenever we get time, we ought to make some time to be in the Bible and study and know what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, so we, we do not just take someone's word for it. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Even though I've been in the Bible all week, I don't want you to just take my word for it. You know why? Because I'm subject to error too. I'm subject to misinterpretation. We don't rest our doctrine on pastors or popes. It's always rested on Scripture alone. One of the great examples of this is seen in the Bereans in Acts 17 and verse uh, 10 through 12. I love this passage as an example uh, in the diligence of these people who were hearing uh, Paul preach. The Bible says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those at Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high high standing as well as men. What do you see they're doing? Paul's preaching the gospel. They're taking their scriptures that they had and they're searching them, examining them in light of the truth that Paul's preaching. So... Uh, what happens when one searches the Scriptures and sees a different conclusion than the tradition they've held? That's the proving ground of whether you stand with Scripture alone. Scripture alone. When Martin Luther was asked to recant from his stance against the corrupt church, what was his response? He said, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience would neither be right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. And essentially, all of us sometimes are brought to that point where we're challenged and we have to decide, are we going to be captive to the word of God or will we bow to the pressures of men? Scripture alone is sufficient for all doctrine. Letter B, Scripture also is alone sufficient for worship, for all Christian worship. Now, how is it that we know how to worship God? Why do we gather on Sunday? Why is preaching the central point of worship service? Why do we sing praises? Why do we offer prayers? Why do we give offerings? Why do we practice baptism? Why do we practice the Lord's Supper? All of these are elements described in the Word of God. And so, for time's sake, I'm not going to go to reference all these. But it must be understood that worship of God must come from His guidelines for worship. 
We don't get to decide that, well, I'm just going to worship you any way I want to. We are governed by the word of God in worship. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. Well, how do we know the truth of how to worship? The word of God. Our worship is to be grounded in scripture alone, not in what the current trend of worship is. Now, we see in the modern movement worship services that are filled with pragmatic effects. Pastors and church leaders, in effect, look to worldly or carnal practices to influence their worship to be more appealing and more effective. This kind of worship is built on man's wisdom and not on the wisdom of God. It is geared towards influencing feelings and emotions to cultivate some kind of a spiritual response. And then once they see that spiritual response, then they feel like they've accomplished their job. Earlier in this chapter, Paul warned of those having the appearance of godliness but denying the power thereof. Avoid such people. I was in Texas uh, when I was ministering there. One of the famous and common things there was cowboy church. You ever heard of it? Cowboy church? And I thought, what in the world is cowboy church, right? <laughs> what in the world is cowboy church? And uh, is there one here? Well, maybe they'll hear this and get mad at me or something. I mean, who knows? I mean, you just bring your horses and trailers and have a good old time, have your rodeo, right, ride around and call it church with maybe a little sermonette devotion or something. I, I believe it's blasphemous to our holy God. Right after our own text on the scriptures, Paul warned of those producing teachers to fit their carnal appetite. 2 Timothy 4.3, the time will, uh, is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We see that so often today. Stuart Brogdon said this rightly in, in a book I was reading by him. It says, those who cannot accept God's word as sufficient will seek out teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And that is exactly what we see happening. So Scripture is sufficient for our worship. It instructs us on how to worship. Notice with me, thirdly, that Scripture is sufficient for Christian evangelism. This is a big one today, as well as worship, because secular means are being used to evangelize in addition to or in place of the Word of God. Now, why is this so detrimental? Because sinners are not converted by emotional gimmicks, flashing lights, or a uh, gospel sales pitch. That's not what converts people. They are converted by the unaltered word of the living God, the gospel of Christ. What did Paul say of the gospel? He said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. How is it that Peter said that we came to be born again of the Spirit? In 1 Peter 1.23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Our regeneration is rooted in the Word of God. James Montgomery Boyce comments on that and says, The only thing that will ever regenerate anyone is the Holy Spirit operating through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why when we come to worship, it's not about entertainment and feeling good. It's just about the exposition of the Scriptures, letting the Word of God be the Word of God. Because only the Word of God will bring about faith in a person. As Paul says in Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So it's unmistakably clear that Scripture alone is sufficient for evangelism. All other techniques and gimmicks are vanity. It is sufficient, fourthly, for Christian living. 
Now, Paul continues to show how this is profitable, and I'll just breeze through this. It's profitable for reproof. Reproof is uh, revealing error in us, both in our morals and our doctrine. Uh, We need that often. It's profitable for correction. Uh, Reproof leads to correction. Scripture shows us not only what is wrong, but how to get right. It's profitable for training in righteousness. Scripture equips us with what we need to live right and helps us to live right. So it is our guide for all of our Christian life. Combine the Spirit and the Scriptures, which we have both. We have all we need to be true Christians in our life. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, light to my path. John Wycliffe said this, all Christian life is to be measured by Scripture, by every word thereof. And so you see in verse 17, what did Timothy need to be a complete minister of God? He needed the word of God. And so, when, no matter what area of Christian life you look at, the Scriptures are sufficient for that. Our sanctification, our discipleship, our spiritual warfare, our trials, our temptations, our suffering, our marriage, our family, our parenting, our finances, our work, our decision-making. All of this we find. Whatever else you can name, we can find answers for in the Scriptures. As Peter said it rightly as well, in 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. And so our great need today is to come back to Scripture alone for our convictions and our conduct. The Scriptures have the answer for the Christian life. Letter E, and lastly, I know I've had a lot to get through tonight. It is sufficient for our Christian influence. Our Christian influence. Our Christianity is not meant to only affect our life, but also the world around us. What did Jesus call us to be? He said, you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? What does light do? It exposes darkness, and it shines forth truth. What does salt do? It preserves and heals. And that is exactly what Christians are to be in the world. We are to promote the lordship of Christ to the culture around us, and this is done through the word of God, not by secular means. Faithfully proclaiming the Word of God. If you'll bear with me, I'll share this example of uh, one example, and then I'm done, I promise. I know we're going overboard here. We got, we're going to pray, but we're going to finish. In 1535, the Council of 200, which governed the city of Geneva, Switzerland, they decided to break with Catholicism and align the city with the Protestant Reformation. They had very little idea what that actually meant. Up to that point, the city had been notorious for its riots, gambling, indecent dancing, drunkenness, adultery, and other vices, a lot of things we see in our own culture. The citizens of Geneva would literally run around the streets naked, singing indecent songs and blaspheming God. They expected this state of affairs to continue even after they were declared Protestants, and the council did not know what to do. It had passed regulation after regulation or law after law designed to restrain this vice and evil to remedy that situation. They thought that becoming Protestant, just in title, would solve the problem. But that did not do any good either. Geneva's morals continued to decline. But the council did one thing right, and it kind of happened over time. They invited John Calvin to come to Geneva as their chief pastor and preacher. John Calvin arrived in there in August of 1536, a year after their change to become Protestant. He was ignored at first, even by the council. He wasn't even paid for the first year. His preaching 
was unpopular, and he was dismissed in 1538. So he went back to Strasbourg, where he was very happy. He had no desire to go back to Geneva. Yet when the situation continued to deteriorate, public opinion turned to him again, and driven by a sense of duty, Calvin returned in September 13th of 1541. And Calvin went back to Geneva with no weapon but the Bible alone. And from the very first, his emphasis had been on Bible teaching, and he returned to it when he got there. When he got back to the church, he picked up exactly where he left off three and a half years earlier. You talk about being faithful to expository preaching. Calvin preached the Bible every day, and under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquired a knowledge of God's Word and were changed by it, the city became, as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the new world. The effects of the preaching of the gospel began to transform lives in that culture in God's sovereign time. And when we look at our own depraved culture and think it's impossible to affect it, to see Christian influence abroad, we must remember the power of the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Nothing but the Word of God will cut to the very soul of man who is darkened in his depravity. Nothing but the Word of God will change hearts and bring people around to living biblically and having biblical worldviews. And I like how James Montgomery Boyce says it. He says, genuine moral change never comes from the top down by law, but from the bottom up through transformed people. You could change all the laws to be as righteous as they want to, as they need to be, but unless people are inwardly changed, it's not going to make a difference. They'll still live in their depravity. So, so much more could be said about this pillar of the church, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is sufficient for our Christian influence on our society and world. It is foundational to our Christian faith. It alone has divine inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency. And so I encourage us that we cling to Scripture alone for all that we believe and all that we practice. That's what we do as a church. We'll continue to do that. And uh, may we come to that even in a practical sense in our own life, that Scripture is our own authority because that is the foundational pillar to all the rest of